thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Tonight's Bible reading is from Luke 12, 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be here with you tonight. Wow, those lights are bright, aren't they? So I can't see many of you, so you can do whatever you like while I'm talking. No, please don't. Um, just a couple of things to get out of the way. The first thing is you're going to see this hand on my, my right hand and your left maybe wobbling around a bit while I'm speaking. And you might be thinking, oh, gee, I feel so sorry for him because he's very nervous. No, it's not nerves. You might be very generous and think the Spirit of God has fallen on him in power. I hope that's true, but that's not why my hand will be wobbling. But it'll wobble away because I have a disease called Parkinson's disease. It's not contagious, so you can shake my hand afterwards and you'll be okay. Um, but it does mean my hand will tremor away for a bit. I mention that because I find if I don't, and I go speak at places, 5 to 10% of those who are present do nothing but fixate upon my hand for the entire talk and wonder what's, you know, am I about to keel over or something. So, no, I'm okay. It's just going to wobble around a bit. But we've got really important stuff to talk about. The scene is an airport lounge. There are people everywhere waiting to board a plane. But your eyes zero in on an old man holding his daughter in a longing, loving embrace. They just sit there, holding each other, tear trickling down each other's cheek. Because they know that this is probably the last time they'll ever see each other. The elderly gentleman has a terminal illness. His daughter lives a long way away. And they both know that the next time she flies back, it will be for his funeral. They hold each other. And there comes a point they've got to let go. And as they do, the father says to his daughter, I love you and I wish you enough. And she looks back at her dad and says, Daddy, I love you too and I wish you enough. She goes off to board the plane. And the old man, overcome with emotion, sits down on a chair. He happens to sit down beside a guy named Bob Perks, who's a, a life coach. And they get talking, and they're sharing this deeply emotional moment. And Bob Perks says to the old man, he says, look, I, I hope you don't mind me asking, but I, I couldn't help but overhear your conversation, and you said to your daughter, I wish you enough. 
What's that about? The elderly gentleman smiled. He paused. Then he said, that's a wish that's been handed down from generation to generation in my family. My parents used to say it to everyone. I say it to my children. My children say it to everyone. When we say, I wish you enough, we're wanting the other person to have a life filled with just enough good things to sustain them. I wish you enough sun to keep your attitude bright. I wish you enough rain to appreciate the sun more. I wish you enough happiness to keep your spirit alive. And I wish you enough pain so that the smallest joys of life appear much bigger. I wish you enough gain to satisfy your wanting. I wish you enough loss to appreciate all that you possess. I wish you enough hellos to get you through the final goodbye. Then he just began to sob and walked away. When I tell that story, I find that people have one of two reactions. Some of us just love it. It resonates deeply within us. It touches something within our hearts, a longing within us for life to be more simple. We've grown up in a culture which says you've got to have more, more, more. You've got to have more, do more, be more, always more. And we hear a story like that and we go, that's what I want. I want to be able to have just enough and to be content with it, to be happy with it. And it resonates. And then there are others amongst us who say, I don't like the story at all. I don't want to settle for just enough. I want it all. I want everything I can have out of life. I want the cars. I want the house. I want the holidays. I want everything I can possibly suck out of this life before I die. I want it, and I'm going to pursue it. I don't want to settle for just enough. I don't know whether you're over there with the story resonating with you or over here with the story screaming out, no, I want everything, or somewhere in between. But for me, it raises a really important question, and that is, how do we live? How do we live well in a society that tells us we always need more? How do we live well in a society that is addicted to consumption, a society that is consumerist? Every society through the history of humankind has had to consume things. If you don't eat, drink, breathe air, you die. So we always have to consume. But our society is marked by a particular quality approach to consumption that is known as consumerism. We have allowed consuming to define us, to define our ambitions, to define our dreams, to define how we use our wealth, to define how we use our time. And as followers of Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, what do we make of that? And so tonight I'd like to take a look at consumerism and ask you, how do you respond to the consumerist pressures of your culture. So this is how I define consumerism. consumerism. Consumerism says the good life consists in acquiring and experiencing as much as possible in the company of a small circle of family and friends. Let me unpack that for you a little bit. Firstly, it's a vision of the good life. It's a vision for what makes a life worth living. Consumerism is not just a, a thing we do, it's actually a whole philosophy that says if you want your life to be valuable, if you want your life to be purposeful, if you want your life to have meaning, this is what you need to do. You need to acquire as many things and experiences as possible. Whatever it is that floats your boat, go out there and get it. Pursue it. Experience it. But we're not raw materialists. We recognise that life is more than just stuff. 
And so we have this sense that we want to enjoy these things in the company of family and friends. We have a, a, a fairly narrow circle around us of people who say, I want to share this journey with you. I want to enjoy stuff, enjoy experiences of life with you. That's what consumerism says constitutes the good life, a life well lived. And you know, Australians are expert at it. We are leading the world in being great consumers. The chart that you can see behind me pictures the five wealthiest nations by medium wealth per adult. That means, in other words, if you add up everybody's wealth, the properties they own, the cars they own, the, the, all the goods they own, the money they have, and then divide it by the number of people in the population and take the midpoint, that's the median, Australia is number two in the world. Bit of a surprise that New Zealand's number one. Sorry to any New Zealanders who are out there, but congratulations. We are the second wealthiest nation in the world. And if you take it by average wealth, we're the third wealthiest nation in the world. We have done extraordinarily well at pursuing the consumerist vision. And we've been growing in our ability to consume. Back in 1960, when my grandparents were roughly my age, the average Australian spent about just over $12,500 a year buying stuff. Now, this is converted to today's dollars. So the effects of inflation are taken out. So back when my grandparents were my age, they would, every Australian would spend an average of about $12,500 in today's money buying stuff. Look at where we've gone since then. $36,000 per Aussie spent consuming things. We have three times as much as our grandparents had. We consumed three times as much as our grandparents' generation did. We are the second or third wealthiest nation on the earth per capita, and we are consuming way more than we've ever consumed in the past. So what do we make of consumerism? If we're experts at it, if it tells us that life consists in acquiring experiences and things in the company of family and friends, what do we make of that? I would like to suggest to you tonight that it is actually an idolatrous parody of the good life which Jesus defined as being rich in love for God and others. That we swim so deeply in it, that it's so much part and parcel of our world that we often don't even see the deleterious impacts it's having upon ourselves, upon our world and upon other people. But that it's something we need to come to grips with if we want to be genuine followers of Jesus. There are three problems at least with consumerism. The first is what I've called the rich fool phenomenon. The passage that was just read to us, the story of the rich fool, you know, there's, there's a, a guy who, whose barns have, uh, his fields have produced an abundance. And he's thinking, what do I do with all of this abundance? He, he's kind of the epitome of the good entrepreneur, the good farmer, the good investor. And, you, and you're sort of sitting there and you think, well, I don't get it. What's, what's he done wrong? Why is he called a fool by Jesus? He's worked hard, his farms have produced. He's now got a, a heap of money to, or goods to, to invest in and, and he says, I'm going I'm to tear down my barns and build bigger ones because that's what I need to store my grain. What has he done so wrong? John Chrysostom was, it's a hard name to say, John Chrysostom, but he was an uh, early preacher and he said, you know, when that rich guy asked himself, where shall I store all my surplus? The answer should have been very clear to him. You store it in the mouths of the poor. He lived in a society very unlike ours. We have this massive middle class. But in Jesus' day, you had 
uh, a peasant class was roughly 90, 95% of the population. And a whole bunch of those people were living in dire poverty. They didn't have enough food to eat. They were starving. They were sick. And they were all around the man who had his big, big silos. But instead of sharing with them, he decided to store it all away so that he'd be set for the future. And Jesus says, that's what makes him a fool. Because that's not a life rich in love for God. Because the way you love God is by loving others. You and I were created to be vehicles of blessing, love, grace and hope to our world. That's, that's what we're created to be. People who extend ourselves way beyond the, the narrow circle we have of family and friends, who love our family, who love our friends, but extend ourselves way beyond that to wherever we find need. We're created to be people who bring love there, who bring hope there, who bring blessing there. That's what it is to be human. That's what you were designed to be. The problem with consumerism is it takes you away from that. It encourages you to invest everything in yourself, everything in what you want, rather than in meeting the needs of others. It makes your life small. One of the things that we know happens with consumerism is that once you reach a, a certain level of income where you, you have enough to meet your basic needs, what matters to you now is not how much you get increase in absolute terms, but how you are in comparison to others. That's what brings you feelings of well-being in a consumerist society. So flat screen TVs. 20 years ago when I bought my big fat boxy analogue, I had no idea I needed a flat screen TV. I now own two. Because as all my friends got them, I started to think, man, I really I need one of those. You know, everybody else has got one. I, I should have one too. See, that's what consumerism does. We keep raising our living standards, and as people raise their standards around us, we look at them and go, well, if they've got that, I should have that too. And we redefine need. And so we just keep on spending more and more on ourselves. So that $36,000 per Aussie that we now have, we spend it all on ourselves. If you don't believe me, believe the statistics. In 2010, the Social Science Survey found, th found this, that we spend, each household spends just on $100 a week on recreation, on things for itself. CDs, video games, gym memberships, sporting activities, just under $100 a week. You know how much we give to charity? $4.26 per household per week. We have three times as much as our grandparents did. Yet the best we can manage as a society is $4.26 per household per week to charity. We have turned in upon ourselves instead of being vehicles of grace, blessing, hope and love. That's the first problem I think there is with consumerism. The second problem is what I call the exploitation phenomenon. I walked into a, a department store near where I live in Newcastle a few years ago, and there was a big pile of white T-shirts stacked in, in neatly on, on trays in, in a um, cupboard. And there was a sign above it that said, nothing feels as good as a 100% cotton t-shirt for five bucks. Nothing feels as good as a 100% cotton t-shirt for five dollars. It's a big claim. But I thought, that's pretty good, five bucks for a t-shirt. So I went over there, 
and I picked one up and I was, I was going to buy it and then I thought, hang on, five bucks, how do, how do they do this for five dollars? I mean, somebody somewhere in the world has had to grow the cotton and then it's taken somewhere else where they, they weave it into fabric and then it's taken somewhere else to a factory where somebody sews it into a t-shirt and then it's exported across the ocean to Australia where a retailer sells it. And somehow along the way, everybody has to have been making some money. How do they do that for $5? So I couldn't figure it out. I wrote, off, I wrote to the company, I said, can you tell me the supply chain and how much people are getting down the supply chain? And they wrote a letter back and said, sorry, that's commercial confidential information. We're not going to share that with you. So I thought, well, I'll go do some research for myself. And I remembered that the shirts were made in Bangladesh. That was what was on the tag. So I researched the garment industry in Bangladesh. And I found out that it's nearly all women who make garments in Bangladesh. They work in appalling conditions. They're subject to all kinds of abuse and violence in the workplace. Um, safety standards that would get you put in jail in Australia. And for that, they earn a pittance. There's a thing called a living wage, and it's an estimation of what it takes to, to lead a, a decent life from the work you do. What, how much do you need in order to put food on the table, to send your kids to school, to put a roof over your head, to have the basics of life? That's the living wage. I discovered that the Bangladeshi garment workers were earning 19% of the living wage for Bangladesh. In other words, they were working hard to make that T-shirt for me to buy, and they weren't earning enough to come anywhere near putting food on their table or a roof over their heads. It's just pure exploitation. So that $5 T-shirt wasn't feeling so good. And then I thought, what about the cotton? I wonder where that's come from. And I did a bit of research and I discovered that 50% of Bangladeshi cotton comes from Uzbekistan. And guess who farms harvest the cotton in Uzbekistan? Children who are enslaved by the state. They're sent out in dangerous, awful conditions. They're paid nothing. That's how we get 100% cotton T-shirts for five bucks. And it's not just T-shirts. You look at almost any product that is produced across the world and you'll find exploitation somewhere in the supply chain. Because the way our consumerist society works is our hunger, our lust, our greed for cheap goods is so strong that we turn a blind eye to exploitation and slavery and child labour. It doesn't have to be that way. But all too often that's the way it is. Jesus says we're to do justice. Prophet Micah said, we're to do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That's who I am. I am a person who is committed to justice, who is committed to compassion, who is committed to kindness. And consumerism stops me, stands in the way of me exercising justice. That's our second problem, the rich fool phenomenon, the exploitation phenomenon. And the third problem with consumerism, as I see it, is what I've called the bad stewardship phenomenon. Go to the book of Genesis and it says we're created in the image of God and we're given two tasks. One is to fill the earth and the other is to rule over it. And now for a long time in the history of the church, 
we took that as carte blanche to do what we liked. It's ours. We're, we're to rule over it. We can do whatever we want with the planet. And we did whatever we want with the planet. But we've started to re- rethink that passage and realize that in the Bible, ruling is all about servanthood. To be a good leader is to be one who serves, protects, cares for that which is entrusted to you. So our job is to look after the creation so that it fulfills the purposes God has for it. Consumerism stops us from doing that. That chart up there shows you the yellow line is the biocapacity of the earth. That is, if you add up all the, the arable land, the fresh water, the forests that produce oxygen, basically everything we can get resources from and say how much, how much is there, that's represented by that yellow line. So as long as we stay behind, underneath that yellow line, we're, we're using less of the Earth's resources than are available. You go above the line, and you're actually asking the Earth to provide more than it's capable of sustainably, sustainably producing. You're running its resources down. And look what's happened. Back there just before 1970, we crossed the line, and we've been going up and up and up ever since. And Australians, have, because we're champion consumers have been leading the way in that. If everybody on this planet consumed the resources of the earth at the same level we Aussies do, we would need four planets simply to provide what people were demanding of it. We are running the earth down. We're destroying it. And we seem to be unable to stop ourselves. We know it. This is not not news to you. But we are so addicted to consumption... that we're not putting the brakes on. We're not finding ways to consume that are ecologically friendly. God created us to be stewards. Instead, we have become destroyers. Consumerism, I think, is a parody of the good life. And when we look it square in the face, we discover that it prevents us from being the loving, generous, kind people God called us to be. It prevents us from being the just people God called us to be and it prevents us from being the stewards God called us to be. So if we're going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to own our humanity, it seems to me we need to find ways to combat that. So what do you do? Do you kind of pack everything up, sell it all up and go live out in the bush somewhere and build a humpy and tie yourself to trees and do all... Well, some people, that's their calling. You're going to be like John the Baptist, right? But most of us, that's not the way. What we have to do is we need to find ways to moderate our consumption, to modify our consumption so that we consume in a way that is shaped by our discipleship rather than a way that is shaped by greed. In this book, I'll give it another plug. You can write your name down and order a copy. There's a lot more on detail on how you do that. But I would like to suggest to you three things that you can start doing pretty much straight away. The first thing is to own your identity. Own your identity. You know, you are a child of God. You are a disciple of Jesus, designed to love God and love your neighbour, to love beyond that narrow circle of family and friends. Certainly love your family, love your friends, love them to bits, but don't stop there. Keep going. Find the need in the world and be vehicles of love and grace and hope. That's who we are. That's what it is to be human. Own that identity. Every time you're confronted with the temptation to just indulge in consumerist orgy of, of consumption... Tell yourself, that's not who I am. 
I'm a follower of Jesus. Own your identity. Secondly, practice thankfulness and generosity. Build these into your life on a daily basis. I recently read an amazing story. It was a, a young woman, Australian woman. She's a photographer, and she found that she was just totally dissatisfied with her life. She said, I've got a husband who loves me, and I love my husband. I've got children that I love. I've got a nice home. I've got a great career, but I feel empty. I just feel like something's missing. So she went and she spoke to a nun that she knew. She said, what do I do? I, I don't get what's going on. And the nun said to her, look, I'll, I'll give you, tell you what you should do, Haley. Every day find one thing to be thankful for. And Haley said, I can do that. And because she's a photographer, she started a project. It's called Gratitude365. You can go to the website and see what she's done. But every day she took a photo of the thing that she was thankful for. And she stuck it on a fridge. And she said, as I took photo after photo after photo, day in, day out, of things that I was thankful for, it changed my life. Because all of a sudden I realised what amazing blessings I have in my life. She said, I always thought my husband wasn't terribly romantic until I took a photo of him serving up dinner because he does it every night. And I was thankful that day for him serving dinner. And you know what I noticed? She said, I noticed that he gave the largest slice of pie for dessert to me. And that he does that every time he serves up dinner. And it just spoke to me of his love for me. And she found all these little blessings in her life. And she said, it changed my life. You know, consumerism keeps telling you, you don't have enough, you don't have enough, you don't have enough, you don't have enough, you need more, you need more, you need more, you need more. Thankfulness is a great way to say, I have plenty. God has blessed me with amazing things. So find a way to, to be thankful every day for just one thing. And I think you'll find it will change your perspective on what you have. And then practice generosity. And by this, I'm not simply talking about generosity with your money. Try to build the habit of generosity into your life. You know, on the, on the, on the way to work, stop in and buy coffee for, for your workmates. Or if you see somebody who's having a hard time and you're tempted just to walk by, stop and just spend some time with them, maybe encourage them. Maybe somebody here in the church has done something that you feel really moved by and helped by. Well, write them a note. Send them a text saying, that really helped me. Build generosity into your life in little ways, and I think you'll find that it starts to come out in big ways as well. And you'll actually start to be looking for opportunities to, to just to bless others, to own who you are. Practice thankfulness and practice generosity. Just find one thing every day that you can be thankful for and one way to practice generosity. And finally, shop your values. When you go to the shops, say, I'm coming here not simply as a consumer, I'm coming as a disciple of Jesus. And I'm going to live out my values of love, grace, hope, justice, faithfulness in what I do. There's a whole bunch of resources on the Catalyst table that can help you do that. Mark mentioned earlier that the card that you can take and give to shops if they have fair trade Easter eggs, say thanks for having them, or if they don't, say I'd love you to stock them. One of the other things you can do is to get a hold of these ethical fashion guide and ethical electronics guide. And, and these are just little booklets based upon a lot of research that's been done by Baptist World Aid. 
and they, they look at companies in the electronics industry and the fashion industry, and they rate them from A to F on their supply chain practices. Look for the companies that have a high rating, and if you have the chance, preference their goods, because you know that they're doing good to their workers. If you really love a product, and you find that the company's got a D or an E or an F, buy it, but then write to the company or send them an email. Say, look, I really love your product, but you don't do very well on how you're treating your workers. Can you improve? Now, you might think, Scott, what does that achieve? Well, let me tell you what it achieves. Three or four years ago, there was a group of retired people in, who live in Toronto, which is on the south side of Newcastle, who started writing to companies saying, we really want you to do better on your supply chain practices. One of those companies was a major uh, grocery chain, and the, the management of that chain got in touch with them and said, look, can you come and talk to us about this? Well, they flipped out, and they rang me and said, can you go talk to them? So I said, okay, I'll go talk to them. So I went across to the head office of this company, and they sat down and they said, you know, um, we're going to change our supply chain policies. We're going to make sure our workers in the developing world get paid a decent wage and work in decent conditions. They said, we're not doing it because we think it's going to make us money. We don't think too many people are going to walk into the shop and go, I'm going to buy that brand of baked beans rather than that brand because those are ethically produced. But what we do want to do is we want to be known as a brand that does the right thing. We don't want our workers going to you know, barbecues on the weekend and saying they work for our company and then everybody just goes silent and sort of looks at the ground because you work for the evil empire. We want them to be proud of who they work for. Makes a difference. Since we started putting out this guide just two or three years ago, one of the major department chains in this country has been bought out by an overseas firm. The management of the overseas firm said to them, one of your key performance indicators for the next two years is to get a B-plus or better rating in the Baptist World Aid Fashion and Electronics Guides. We're just a little organisation, but it's got lots of people like yourself who are shopping their values and who are taking time to say, I've looked at this guide and I'd like you to perform better. The news is starting to get through and companies are starting to make a change. Shop your values. When you go to the store and you're buying seafood, look for the sustainably produced seafood. They'll have a little label. When you're buying paper, look for the sustainably produced paper. When you're buying tea or coffee, look for the ethical supplied tea or coffee. It's a simple thing you can do, but by shopping your values, you will be free from exploitation and you will be bringing blessing into the lives of those workers because it means they're getting paid a decent wage and a decent return. Own your identity. Practice thankfulness and generosity on a daily basis and shop your values. There's a whole lot of more we could say, but I just want to close by reading you a quote from a book that was written a couple of years ago by the name of Affluenza. The authors have this theory that we are all suffering from this collective disease they call affluenza. And this is how they finish their book. When your time comes and your whole life flashes before you, will it hold your interest? How much of the story will be about moments of clarity and grace, kindness and caring? Will the main character, you, appear as large and noble as life itself, or as tiny and absurd as a cartoon figure darting frantically among mountains of stuff? It's a great question, isn't it? Make your life as large and noble as life itself.
Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, looking into the face of consumerism is difficult because we live it, we breathe it, we own it. But when we do look hard and fast at what consumerism is doing to us, to people in poorer countries and to the planet, we're confronted, we're shocked, we're disturbed. Help each of us, Lord, to become people who are committed to consuming as disciples of Jesus, to consuming in a way that is just, that is equitable, that is fair, that is ecologically sustainable, that is generous and kind. And I just ask now, Lord, that each one of us might be able to take one tiny step forward this week to start building discipleship into our consuming. Grant us the courage and the conviction to do this, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.